0: Good evening. Welcome to What Catholics Believe, a special edition. Today is the day of the elections, the midterm elections. We're not really capable of having a program on results that have not yet been turned in yet, so uh, Mr. Nagley and I have determined to do a program a little later this week on the results of the election. Tonight, i are going to pay attention to the Sixth and the Ninth Commandments, that is, the... Lesson in our Brief Catholic Catechism for Adults, Lesson 39. Uh, as you know, in our catechism series, we're using the series by Father William Cogan, A Brief Catechism for Adults, A Complete Handbook on How to Be a Good Catholic. Now, this Brief Catechism for Adults, actually, is the work of Father Cogan through the 1950s in... Uh, doing parish work and preparing adults, converts, uh, is not the best catechism in the world, certainly Certainly not the most thorough. It is indeed brief, and it has undergone modifications uh, since Vatican II, but it does point out what those modifications are, in that it does tell you what the traditional Catholic practice was before the changes came in, so that makes it somewhat helpful but it is written for very busy adults who carry a full-time job, perhaps even two, and in the world today that can be very helpful to have a brief Catholic catechism that does teach the fundamentals of the faith. So tonight we talk about the Sixth and the Ninth Commandments, and before we get into the subject, as it is presented in the book itself, uh, which is I'm, one might even say superficial, because it just gives the very, very basic teachings of rights and wrong, right and wrong, in, in involving the Sixth and Ninth Commandment. I think it's important to give a little preamble, explain the importance of this particular subject matter. You know, the Sixth and the Ninth Commandments of God are about the right use of a most special gift from God a gift so amazing that we might say it's rather spectacular. If um, God had created Adam and Eve and told them uh, that um, he had given them so much in the garden and would give them anything, anything that would be necessary for their happiness and told them to go off and discuss this and come back to him to see if he'd forgotten anything, or if they could think of anything else they'd like to have, if they'd come back after a certain amount of time and told him, well, uh, God, we're very grateful to you for creating us. We're grateful for the garden and providing for all of our needs. But there's one thing we'd like to have, and that is we'd like you to give us the power to determine who will ever live. In other words, we want Almighty God, you, our creator, to... Restrain your creative power with regard to us so that uh, no other human being will ever come into existence without our agency. So if you want to create another human being, you have to do it through us. Give us that power to decide who will ever live or who will not live. Now that would have been so outrageous, a request of Adam and Eve, that it's hard for us to imagine that even occurring to them. But the point is it didn't have to occur to them. God actually gave them that power. He gave them the power of giving life. And the consequences for them were very, very serious. But the consequences, you might say, uh, for God also, in a way, uh, were also very, very serious consequences. You see, the reason why we talk about the right use of the sixth and the ninth commandments, uh, the right use of this special gift from God, is that right here means according to God's will. God gave them the power of giving life as a, you might call it, a directed gift. When someone gives to the church a gift for the sake of a certain purpose, we call that a directed gift. If someone says, Father, this uh, money that I'm giving you is uh, to be used for alms for the poor, Or this money is to be given for the sake of buying a statue of Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception to adorn the church. Or this money is given for the sake of a scholarship for a child in the school. Those are all directed gifts because the purpose of the the gift for which the gift is to be used is determined by the giver. They're still very generous gifts and very much appreciated and very much needed. It doesn't take anything away from the gift. When God gave us the power of giving life he gave us a directed gift it was given for a very specific purpose god's first command to any human beings was about that gift when he joined adam and eve and he said to them increase multiply fill the earth in other words our lord was telling them give life you give life and give a specific kind of life the life that i've given you human life now we might ask, well, is it really such a special gift? After all, uh, you know, the animals on earth give life, uh, from mosquitoes to elephants. We, we find animals giving life. We find plants generating, uh, living plants of their own kind. And so, is this really such a special gift after all? I mean, if we're going do the same things, the same thing that the plants, that the mosquitoes and the elephants do, and generating life according to their kind, uh, can we really consider this to be such a special gift? And the answer is, yes, absolutely. Why? Because human life is different from the life of a plant or the life of another animal. Human life is different from the life of a mosquito or the life of an elephant. Uh, human life is different from all the other life, types of life that God made here on earth, because Human life is created in God's image. It is created in God's image because of the human soul. In fact, we might say that no other form of life in this world, in this creation, in this universe, even compares with human life insofar as the human life is meant to be like God, to know Him and to love Him. To know and to love are powers that are godlike powers. To know truth and to love truth, and to be able to enjoy what is beautiful, that is something uniquely human in this creation. Not only can no other life in in, in this universe uh, do these things, to know truth and even to, do, to understand what truth is, uh, to love goodness and even know what goodness is and be able to find it and uh, <clears throat> to recognize it and emulate it. But uh, to enjoy what is beautiful, you might say the, the union of the true and the good in, in what is beautiful and how appealing that is, delightful it is to us. But we can also say that it's true, we, we even, in a sense, have a power that goes beyond the angelic powers in this regard. As superior as the angels are to us, in their powers of intelligence and, and will to know and to love, they cannot generate life. No angel has the power to generate another angel, or to give life to another angel, to be involved in a as a procreator of another angel. <clears throat> so we human beings are unique in all creation, insofar as God has given us the power to generate life that involves the creation of a human soul, an immortal human soul. You see, in that sense, human life makes demands upon God. Uh, We are created in God's very image. And so when we unite to generate another human being, to conceive another human being, we actually place demands upon God's own creative powers because we demand of him the creation of a new human soul, which is like the creation of a new world, Uh, a being with its own existence, uh, unique from other human beings, that will exist forever, which the power to know and to love its creator and to enjoy him as infinite beauty in heaven. As exquisite beauty in heaven, to be united with him in the beatific vision, that is, in the glory of heaven. Each and every human soul that God creates is created because we demand that of him, because we take the action to conceive a child. Not only does this place a demand upon the creative powers of Almighty God, but it also places demands on God's redemptive powers. And again, we are the only type of life in in creation that can do that. To place a demand on the redemptive powers of God. That is, that when God creates a soul at our demand, that God must redeem that soul. That he has to do the suffering necessary for the redemption of that soul. And hopefully for the sanctification of that soul too. So God has to invest, you might say, his creative power in every soul, but he also has to invest his redemptive power in every soul. And the amazing thing is, he's given us the power to decide what souls will be created, what life will be given, what human life will be given. So not only will God suffer for that soul, but he actually binds himself to conform his own creative powers to our choices. You see, God will not create any human being without our agency. It is not just that God gave us the power to generate human life, but in the process of doing so, the very act of doing so, God denied himself the use of that power to create another human being as he created Adam even to create another human being as he created Eve. And so God will not create any other human being without our agency. Even his own divine son became man through the agency of a human woman. Our blessed mother, Mary, had had to even give her consent, had to even give her consent for Almighty God to have his son conceived in her as man. In a sense, giving us all the power to decide who will ever live. That's amazing to think about. But this also um, <clears throat> has the other side of that, that by creating human life that is a soul upon our demand, whenever a man and woman unite or conspire together to conceive a child, or even when they unite, conspiring not to conceive a child, but they fail to prevent it, to prevent the conception of that child, despite their worst efforts to, to do so. And lo and behold, there is the uniting of the elements necessary to genetically form a human being. God creates a soul for that, and so that soul is demanded from God. We would, in a sense, require of it, of him to create a human soul when we present the conditions that, we, that necessitate the, the, the conception of a human being. God himself is bound, as it were, to provide an immortal soul. Even when we act under the most sinful conditions, And so, disrespectfully and contemptuously of God, in not using that conceiving power according to His will and for His purposes, when we do that, and we do conceive, necessarily there is that creation of a new human soul which will exist forever and continue and continue and continue without end. So what power has God given us over himself by this enormous gift, this life-giving gift? And one can see why God takes this so very seriously, rewarding those who use this precious gift well, according to his will, and in his service, and how God holds accountable and punishes those who abuse this, this precious gift that he's given. You yourselves, you understand this, I hope. If you were to (coughs) award a precious gift to someone you love, someone you trust, and you put that in their hands, and you, you actually surrender it from yourself to them, asking them to use it well, use it wisely, and you direct it to a very great purpose of your choosing, but they take that gift and they twist it and they turn it to serve some other very foul and perverse purpose, <clears throat> just satisfying themselves, uh, just uh, cheaply and gr- almost grotesquely dragging you through the mud, <clears throat> and uh, and 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 treating that gift as uh, was was, it, was uh, a joke or worse, a plaything. Uh, how offended would you or should you be <clears throat> if your gift was given as a matter of love, and you would hope was accepted as a matter of love, too, and this is what was done to you. You would be very abused, you'd feel very abused by that. If you gave a gift to the church, and that gift was not appropriated, and applied to the use for which you asked, you would have certain questions to ask, and you would not be pleased. How much more so, in a case like this, where Almighty God gives such an an, an incalculable gift, such a An almost inconceivable excuse the expression, an almost inconceivable gift of conceiving child. If we take that and we abuse it, how awful is that? How sinful is that. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ taught here on earth how we are to treat God, our Creator and how we are to treat each other. The Ten Commandments re- are re- referred to how we are to treat our Lord God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and how we are to treat each other. You see, seven of the Ten Commandments concern how we are to treat each other. And uh, so many of the times in the Gospels, our Lord talks about the relations of human being to human being, the the the, the uh, Relation, our our social relations to each other and how we are to treat each other. And we see how important it is to Almighty God that we treat each other well, that we don't attack each other, that we don't inflict injury on each other, that we don't hate each other and carry grudges against each other. Our Lord talks about those who set a bad example and scandalize the little ones and how rather than give scandal to a little one, they would have been better off if they'd been taken out into the sea, had a millstone tied on their necks and thrown overboard, than that they had lived to scandalize a child. This is our Lord's way of warning us. There are dire consequences for giving scandal to an innocent little one <clears throat> in this life. And uh, our Lord is warning us then. He cares very much how we, we care for those little ones. Our Lord even gives us, commands how we are to treat our fellow human beings who are on our same level. Uh, our Lord gave the, the, the story, the parable, about the servant who owed the 10,000 talents to a king, to his king, and the king forgave him because he asked, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And then that servant went out and was choking another servant, a fellow servant of his, who owed him so much less, and he would not forgive his debt. And what became of that? Well, our the king called back in the servant, who owed him the 10,000 talents and wound up handing him over to the torturers until he paid the entire debt simply because the man would not be forgiving to his fellow servant. That's how God takes very seriously how we treat each other. Uh, even, even the story of the the Sir Good Samaritan is about how one treats his own enemies And uh, our Lord tells us to follow the example of the good Samaritan who took care of the fallen Jew who was beaten by robbers and left to die by the roadside. So if we are required to treat well even our enemies, even the little ones of the earth, how serious it is that we take seriously the power of giving life because with that we are actually generating those very little ones who are our own children, and we are responsible not only to give life to them, but then to care for them, to raise them. And how terrible will be the punishment of those who uh, give life and then just absolutely, carelessly, um, as it were, almost endlessly scandalize the children they create. The children they procreate, the children that they generate, by this great power that God has given them, that they neglect these children and fail them, and uh, even raise them up in their in their formative years uh, in a in a just scandalous way, scandalizing them end, endlessly, beginning with the very way that they conceive them. So you see, this is a very serious matter when we talk about the sixth and ninth commandments. We're talking about a power that requires an actual vocation from God. It's the foundation of an actual vocation in life, where one dedicates his or her life to giving life and nurturing that life. An actual vocation, a life's work, and a vocation is a life of service to God. Giving life and nurturing that life. Not only the life of the body, but the life of the soul. What an enormous responsibility that is. When we talk about the six and Nine Commandments, all of this stands behind what we know as these commandments. God actually uh, dedicates two of his Ten Commandments to this question of purity and the use of this life-giving power. Notice that at the beginning of this chapter, on page 145 in our book, lesson 39, the 6th and the ninth commandments, we have a long citation from the first epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. And this is it. Quote, But the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, God hath both raised up the Lord, and will raise us up also by his power. Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. Or know you not that he who is joined to a harlot is made one body? For they shall be, saith he, two in one flesh. But he who is joined in the Lord is one spirit. Fly fornication. Every sin that a man doth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Or know you not that your members are the temple of the Holy Ghost, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a great price. Glorify and bear God in your body. These words of St. Paul can be a little confusing at times, but you know the sense of what he's saying here. Is that your bodies to have been sanctified, by the sacraments you've received, by the Holy Ghost, <laughs> the Holy Ghost who entered you, entered your soul at your baptism. And uh, our Lord tells us that when the Holy Ghost enters the soul, he, he speaks a word, and that word is Abba, Father. When we are baptized, we become children of God, and we actually can can address God as Father now. And we can pray the, word, the prayer, our Father, in a way that we could never pray it before. Once we're baptized, we really are the children of God by sanctifying grace in the soul. The life of God has entered the soul. He starts out by saying, St. Paul says, the body is not for fornication. The body is for the Lord. Again, you know, even our very bodies are are gifts to us. Not just the power of giving life, but the very body, the life of the body itself. God himself designed us to have body and soul united in one person, ourselves. So much so is the body a necessary part of human nature that our sinful bodies will return to the earth to be recreated at the resurrection, to be reunited with the body and share in the glory of heaven because it is an essential element of human nature. Body, as much as soul, actually. And so the Lord is created for the body, interestingly enough, he says that. And how would we understand that? He's referring to our Lord Jesus Christ here as the Lord. And in fact, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ became man. The Son of God became man to save us, body and soul. So in that sense, we can say that the Lord is also for the body insofar as he became the Lord, he became our Savior, he was incarnate, the Word became flesh because of our sinful Bodies as well as our sinful souls, and our bodies would need to be recreated <clears throat> to rise in the glory of God. Now, God hath both raised up the Lord, that is to say, God the Father raised up our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> and will raise us up also by his power. And St. Paul says, Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? How so? I mean, we talk about the members of the body, our arms and legs and so on. We refer to these as being members of the body, as if they're distinct. And insofar as they're material things, yeah, the arm is the arm, the leg is the leg. They're not the same thing, as St. Paul says. The arm is given for, <clears throat> for you know, to serve God's purpose and God's design, the leg too. <coughs> Even the senses of the body, the eyes and the ears, we anoint separately when one is in danger of death, we anoint them because they are given each for its its special purpose, to serve God in a certain way in this world, by enabling us to see and hear, smell, taste, touch, and so on. And so we, we anoint them separately and ask God's mercy because of sins created by each of these powers. But when we talk about the body itself, we know that the body too, and all of its members, all of its parts actually, are distinct, and yet they are joined, and they are joined in one life, uh, united with one soul to form one person. So when we become members of Christ, when our souls are united with our Lord Jesus Christ in sanctifying grace, our bodies are included in that. And yes, we are members of Christ. Even, Even our bodies themselves, as he says, your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? This perhaps becomes even most uh, evident when we talk about the sacraments, which are physical things, outward signs. The priest uses his tongue to speak the words of Christ, and his hands to hold the host and the chalice. These are physical things, his tongue, his hands, the host, the chalice, physical things, And yet, he turns them over to our Lord and dedicates them to our Lord's service and even speaks the words of Christ in the person of Christ at the altar. That's how closely we can say that our bodies are members of Christ. And if we turn them over to serve something unclean, uh, fornication, evil, what a tragedy that is. God forbid, he says, or know you not that he who is joined to a harlot is made one body, in a sense, one body with her. And he's referring here to a statement made by Almighty God in Genesis chapter 3. Our Lord himself refers to this statement of God the Father. When our Lord is confronted by the Pharisees in the streets of Jerusalem who want to know if it's permissible to divorce and remarry. And our Lord says, uh, no, they tell him what Moses said, and our Lord said, well, Moses tolerated that because of the hardness of your hearts. But God, the Father, did not want that at the beginning, and he actually stated, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, the two people on earth he should love naturally the most, and he will cleave to his wife in such a way that the two will become one flesh, our Lord says. Uh, That is what God says in Genesis chapter 3. And The Bible says there, that what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Our Lord himself quoted those words. And recalling those words to the Pharisees, he himself, the Son of God here on earth, overruled Moses, in a sense, by saying, this was tolerated, but no more. This will no longer be tolerated. I say so. One who is greater than Moses, I say this will not be tolerated. You cannot do this. And so it is true that a man and a woman are meant to become one flesh in Jesus Christ. And that is representative of their one mind and one heart, that they join together in their common love for each other. <clears throat> for they shall be, he says, two in one flesh. And he goes on, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. So it's actually not just, it's the point is not being the one body Primarily, but being the one soul. Their souls unite. We talk about the soulmate and so on. <clears throat> and how important that those who unite in, uh, well, even, even just natural marriage, let alone the sacrament of matrimony, <clears throat> that they be united in spirit in their common love. Those united in uh, in matrimony, the sacrament, have to be united in their common love for God, their common love for our Lord. <clears throat> and there there you have the foundation for the union of the body when we talk about the two becoming one flesh and their bodies uniting we're really thinking in terms of the the union that produces life that is such a in, the most intimate bodily union that produces life and it starts with the union of the soul the spirit their minds and their hearts joined together. He says, Know you not that your members are the temple of the Holy Ghost, who is in you, whom you have from God? Remember in St. John chapter 6, where our Lord talked about giving his body and blood for them to eat and drink? And he said that the one who did receive him, his body and blood, <coughs> devoutly, lovingly. Well, as a result of that that reception, that communion, Our Lord said, the Father and I will come and we will dwell within that one. We will dwell within him. Where the Father and Son are, the love between them, the Holy Ghost must also be. And so it is true, the Holy Ghost actually dwells in those who are in the state of grace, as we all, Catholics, Christians, should be, certainly. And the Holy Ghost should actually be within us. And uh, our bodies, therefore, become the temples of the Holy Ghost. And he says, you are are not your own. You are bought at a great price. You've been ransomed. And so we have to glorify and bear God in the body, in the body itself. This helps explain the church's reverence for the body, not only in life, but in death, too. And even how the church, the Catholic church, forbids cremation. The true Catholic church traditionally forbids cremation. Because the body is not garbage or trash to be... <clears throat> destroyed once the soul leaves. Quite uh, the contrary, the body which has been baptized, anointed, deserves to be treated. and The bodies of the saints are treated as precious relics, <clears throat> pledges of the resurrection. And so we actually get to the questions here now that we've read the passage from First Epistle of Saint Paul to the Corinthians. We proceed to the questions, which I say are, well, kind of a superficial treatment, and there are very few of them, but they do give you the idea of what is sinful and what is not in this regard. Number one, what is the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's true. And what is the ninth commandment? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Now, these are the commandments we know as the Catholic Church has given to, to us. We know that if you were to read in Exodus chapter 20, the account of these commandments, as Moses brought them down from Mount Sinai, there would be some variation with regard to the, the final commandment. There, there you would read in Exodus chapter 20, uh, then the final commandment was, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, or stop, neither shalt thou desire his wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is his. And you notice that what Moses brought down from the mountain to the people um, referred lastly to coveting a man's house first. And then when it referred to desiring his wife, it lumped her together with the slaves and with with the livestock or his possessions. This is how the Jews regarded the place of a wife in the mind, in the heart, in the life of her husband. She was little more, legally, than one of the slave girls. Tragic, but the result of sin, no doubt, this was the result of sin. And you ask, well, why did God send Moses down the mountain with a commandment like that? And it the answer becomes very clear when we when we remember in the Sermon on the Mount, in St. Matthew, chapter five, St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter five, that our Lord repeats the expression, it was said to you of old, that's under the law of Moses, but I say to you, do this instead. Time after time, about eight eight times, I think that expression is used. It was said to you of old, that is under Moses, do this. But I say to you, do this instead. For example, it was said to you of old, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, love your enemy. Do good to those. Bless those who curse you. Quite different. Dramatically different. Supernaturally different. True. Absolutely. And after going through this litany, uh, as it were, of our Lord saying, it was said to you of old, do this, but I now say, do this instead. Our Lord wants to make sure that the people understand that he's not doing away with the old law. He's not doing away with the Ten Commandments or anything of the kind. Our Lord says, I have not come to destroy the law. I've come to... Bring it to completion. I've come to perfect the law. And by his own, his own words, our Lord indicates that the old law was not perfect, and it could not be perfect. If Moses had come down the mountain and told the people the commandment of the new law with regard to purity and what was required of them, that they could not put away a wife. They didn't want anymore and take another woman. It's because they wanted to. They would have killed Moses. How often they wanted to kill him anyway, just as it was. No, God was not going to require Moses to go down that mountain and to confront those people with that. But our Lord Almighty God Himself would come. The Son of God would Himself come to the world, and He would confront us with the new commandment. He would perfect the law, He would bring us the perfect law of the New Testament. And he would pay the price because, well, you saw what happened when our Lord told the Pharisees. You saw what happened when the apostles themselves heard our Lord's words that this was not permitted and would no longer be permitted. Um, The Pharisees were outraged because our Lord had told them that they were actually committing adultery all this time. And they were killing adulterers according to the law of Moses. And yet our Lord made it clear that because of the hardness of their hearts, They were pursuing a course that was actually adultery. And the apostles, just a few verses after that in in St. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, confronted our Lord, how can this be? They challenged our Lord, you might say, how can this be that a man cannot put away his wife and take another if he wants to? Uh, It's remarkable to think the apostles were so um, mystified by by this command of Christ when they didn't stop him and challenge him when he promised to give his own body and blood as their food and drink, but they did challenge him over this, that a man must be faithful to his wife and cannot put her away when he doesn't want her or wants someone else instead. It's not permitted. That would be adultery, and it is greatly sinful in the eyes of God. (laughs) The apostles decided as a result of this after asking our Lord, and he told them, well, the grace is given. It says in the gospel, they said, well, if this is the case, it's better never to get married at all. That was their decision. It was so understood that of course, of course you can do that. Men can do that. Put away a wife and take another woman. It was just understood. Everyone knew that. It was unthinkable that it could be otherwise. Except Christ, Jesus was commanding that it was indeed otherwise and would henceforth be held accountable for it. It was shocking to them. So, when we talk about the sixth and the ninth commandment, we see, even in, in the terms of these commandments, as we're given these commandments as Catholics, we see the church is taking that last commandment as given by Moses, as delivered by Moses, and acknowledging the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ has come now. And he has given us commandment about that commandment and has actually modified that. It is no longer merely a matter of, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, neither shalt thou desire his wife or his slaves or his livestock or anything he owns. It's not that anymore. Our Lord Jesus Christ has now told us, a man who puts away his wife and takes another commits adultery, and she in taking another husband commits adultery. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That's what our Lord has said. He's restored. He didn't, it wasn't the revolutionary. He was the restorer of the order that God intended. We're the revolutionaries because of our sinfulness. We're the revolutionaries. We're the rebels. Our Lord came to restore what God intended in creating our first parents.
1: We have to realize
0: that uh, in hearing his word, we are restoring ourselves to the state of grace, what God intended us to be. So so it is with the First and Second Commandments. By the way, the Protestants have have tried to go back to the Old Testament statement (coughs) of uh, the commandment as Moses brought it down the mountain. Uh, Unfortunately, not hearkening to what our Lord said when he came, Um, the Protestants want to go back to this idea (coughs) of the commandment as it was delivered by Moses, not as our Lord perfected it. Because the Protestants believe in divorce, and also, when they modified their commandments, they introduced a new second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image, which Catholics always understood under the, the first commandment, thou shalt not worship any false gods. But the Protestants introduced that second commandment to basically uh, attack Catholics for having statues okay but they made thereby this the second commandment the third commandment. so now thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain becomes the third commandment and thou shalt uh, you know observe the Sabbath day. Um, That becomes the fourth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother becomes the fifth commandment. And of course, the question arises then why they don't have 11 commandments. And the answer is because they've actually grouped what we Catholics have as the ninth and tenth commandments. The ninth commandment, especially concerning a man's wife. The tenth commandment, especially concerning his property. (laughs) They keep that as one, and they say this. Simply, thou shalt not covet, period. And they do not give the rest of the commandment as Moses presented it. Why? Well, because if they did give the complete final commandment, thou shalt not covet, and then continued, a man's house, neither shall you desire his wife or his slaves or his animals. Well, that would not be very, uh, shall we say, politically correct at any time, and so they simply put a period on it after the word covet, thou shalt not covet, making no distinction themselves between a man's wife or his property. Sad, but true. So, uh, if you are puzzled by this because you learned the Protestant Ten Commandments, don't be surprised uh, that this is the the actual history behind this, and why we Catholics know the ninth commandment to be thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, and the tenth commandment as thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Why do these commandments oblige what do these commandments oblige you to do? Uh, to practice the virtue of chastity according to your state in life, chastity it has to do with the chaste use of the power, uh, especially the reproductive power that God has given and the attraction between man and woman that he's placed there for the service of that reproductive power of giving life. It says here, chastity regulates the use of, well, they use the word sex here for married people. Chastity forbids any use of sex, complete or incomplete, to unmarried people. This also includes those who are engaged. If they're not married, if they're not bound to each other for life, then they cannot legitimately use the, the reproductive powers. They just refer to it as sex here. You know, unfortunately, the word has become rather cheapened, the word sex. It comes from the Latin, a Latin word for cut or divide. It simply means that there's a division in the human race between male and female. The, and not just a great divide, but human beings are divided into these two great Genders, male and female, and um, that's what the word "sex" actually, where it comes from. Uh, the two great divisions of the human race, according to according to gender, and uh, unfortunately, it, it now has been so cheapened that it means uh, the the act of uh, copulation, whether it's moral or immoral. Uh, there is no distinction for most people these days, it seems, and. Um, Unfortunately, um, it, it takes on very lurid and immoral Im, Im connotations. the word sex today, but it actually comes down to God's making male and female, making male and female. That's what it, that's what it means essentially. Uh, and you see what modern the modern world has done with that. Our modern society has done with the whole idea of uh, transgenderism and multigenderism and all the rest. When uh, the world Uh, turns away from God, uh, human beings go completely out of their minds. They not only become irrational, they become anti-rational. And this is what we're witnessing today, an orgy of anti-rationalism, an actual hatred of human nature and the God who created it. So you see that uh, we are given the power of giving life, but we are also expected to use it chastely in other words, to regulate it according to God's purpose. Such that only those who are joined by God in marriage or matrimony can legitimately use that power. Why? Well, well, because this power is actually directed to another human life. It's not just the man's life, and it's not just the woman's life. This power is actually directed to bringing into existence another life. And the union of the man and the woman, and the generation of that life, that that ver- their very union as husband and wife is meant to be directed to the service of the life that they created and the God who gave it. So this is very different from any other power we have. And that's why these commandments have to do with the vocation. That's why this power has to do with vocation. And that's why it has to be so very much restricted It has to be much restricted because it is meant to be applied in service, something that is so dependent on it. The the service that we render the children that we beget and bring into the world uh, requires That the use of that power be directed toward them, and not be something selfish, just among the two of us, for the two of us. You know, in in marriage itself, there there are essential purposes. There are two essential purposes. The first is the beginning of children, the giving of life. The second is the mutual care of the husband and wife for each other. But the one is primary and the other is secondary. You can't sacrifice the first for the sake of the second. Two people cannot legitimately say to each other in marriage, well, we want to enjoy life together, so we have to continue having sexual relations, but not have kids. And so we're going to use birth control or whatever else. So that we can continue having marital relations, but not, not give life. It's, it's an abomination before God. It's a twisting of his purposes and the gifts that he's given to us, to serve our selfish purposes rather than his divine purpose. And um, so we see in in both those two purposes uh, for which God has created us the way he did, as man and woman, such that united we can give life, both purposes of generating life and caring for that life And the secondary purpose of caring for each other and loving each other require a chaste use of that power, the sexual power, within marriage and make it wrong to use it outside of marriage. Now, who are the only ones who may engage in sex, as the book says? Only husband and wife who are validly married to each other and only in the natural manner with their proper marriage partner, and only in a manner that leaves open the conception of a child. So that answer says it all fairly well, very directly. Only those who are united by God in, in uh, uh, true marriage can legitimately use this power, unite and copulate, such as to enjoy the, that union, the sexual union, but also they must do it in the right way so that it can generate a power. There's a natural way to do this, and that is the only way that it can be legitimate. Otherwise, especially if it involves all of the satisfaction coming from that, but avoids the responsibility of giving life, then it is an abomination and a perversion. Number eight, rather, yes, number five says, name some of the sins against the Sixth Commandment. They list adultery, adultery, which is, uh, of course, you know, indulging in uh, relations with someone who is not one's wife, where there is a marriage, where somebody is, in fact, married to someone else, but that person indulges in sexual relations with someone to whom they're not married. If one of those indulging in this, these sexual relations, if one of them is married to another person, then that would be a single adultery. But if they're both, both parties involved are married to other people, that's double adultery. That includes a whole raft of other evils, uh, scandals and all the rest, that, and, and sins against justice, violating the rights of husbands and wives to each other. <clears throat> it's a very evil thing. You can see why adultery was used as a symbol of apostasy, even in the Old Testament, and the Jewish people abandoning their god for a false god, the service of Baal or Moloch or some other evil thing. Self-abuse is considered to be a sin against the Sixth Commandment, again, indulging in the satisfaction and the pleasures that are meant to be reserved for those who are married only in legitimate wedlock, and just wantonly stealing it from oneself, uh, clearly contrary to the law of God. It's considered to be an unnatural sin, a sin against nature. Birth control is something else, too to prevent the birth of a child, to present, well, they say the conception of a child in the first place, but much of the birth control they have available out there, while it does prevent the conception of a child uh, most often, it does not always do so. And so a lot of these birth control forms that they use actually do allow the conception of a child and then will murder the child by an abortion. They often serve... As a contraceptive, but then where they fail as an abortifacient, where they cause an abortion too. Those who are using the contraceptive pill, for example, <clears throat> would well discover might well discover that they're actually having spontaneous abortions, not even realizing it, because where the pill fails to prevent a conception, <clears throat> it will abort the child. It's, it's, as I say, it serves as an abortifacient. Sins against nature, we don't, won't go into detail here, they're too gross. As you know, sins against nature are sins that cry to heaven for vengeance. And our nation is awash, our nation is drowning in these sins right now. No wonder God is so displeased with us, and there are very practical consequences to that. Now, immodest dressing, it seems uh, to mention immodest dressing seems kind of uh, on a lower level than the others, but we have to realize that Immodest dressing is the way that people signal each other that they are open to more. They send signals to each other. They awaken interests and desires in each other by their immodest dress. So it's a very evil thing. And uh, our young people, especially, growing up today in this world, have to realize that the gross immodesty that they are being sold as perfectly normal and desirable is very simple in the eyes of God, and there's a very heavy price to pay for the scandal it causes, and they have to resolve to be modest in their dress, and not buy any clothes that are immodest. And in the first place, and if they have things in their closets that are immodest, they should throw them away now, get rid of them. Um, if they're just too small for them, maybe they've outgrown them. Give them to somebody smaller who might find it modest to wear them, but don't wear the immodest dressing yourself. Impure touches, looks, kisses, dancing, reading, looking at impure pictures, dances, shows, movies, keeping company with people who are a temptation against modesty, who are a temptation against purity. All of these things compromise the soul and the purity of the soul. Why is this so grave? Well, our Lord tells us again in the chapter chapter 5 of St. Matthew's Gospel, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount again that blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And uh, those words of our Lord are very important in the Beatitudes because they imply that those who are not pure of heart will not see God. we talk about these sins against the Sixth Commandment, we realize these things are very significant. They will have a very, very large role to play in the judgment of a soul. What scandal a person has given, what scandal a person has caused, And what scandal a person has encouraged by enjoying the scandal that is provided by others, too. Going to movies, shows, music, listening to music that is impure and immodest. That's aiding and abetting the entire crime scene of impurity. A very, very foul scene indeed. A gigantic cesspool, worthy of hell, really. And our Lord, Almighty God, considers sins against purity to be of the very nature mortal sins. They, if they're not mortal, be it because somebody was not paying attention or was ignorant or did not give full consent, but of their very nature, if one gives full consent to them, they are mortal sins, sins against purity. Now they ask you number six, what is adultery? Well, they tell you it's sexual intercourse which a married person has with someone to whom he or she is not married. Um, And then the quotation from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. I'm sorry, that's from Hebrews chapter 13. 1 Corinthians says, neither fornicators nor adulterers shall possess the kingdom of God. Very straightforward statements. In fact, at the end of one of them, St. Paul says, let no one deceive you with vain words, as though he expects someone to argue to the contrary. He makes it very clear that no fornicator, or adulterer, or unclean person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with vain words. Number seven, what is fornication? Sexual intercourse between an unmarried man and an unmarried woman. So, in other words, it's a certain of impurity for them to engage with each other, but they haven't violated any marriage vows in doing so. If they were to commit adultery and violate marriage vows, as I say, there be a whole raft of accompanying mortal sins against justice with that. But here we're talking about the uh, intercourse between um, an unmarried man and unmarried woman, not involving a marriage. It is a mortal sin of impurity. And yes, there are souls in hell for the, for that. What is self abuse? Enjoying sexual pleasure alone. So uh, nothing not said about that. Um, I think everyone can understand exactly the significance of that. What are sins against nature? Perversions committed with oneself, with another person, or with animals. So to take that act, which should be marital, of uh, marital union, or marital intercourse, to take that action and to twist it and to pervert it really is an evil thing. Those are sins against nature to um, to enter into actual uh, form of natural intercourse uh, outside of marriage or against a marriage at least that's not perverting the act itself uh, to do so with someone with whom you're not married and which where no one is married that is can still be a natural act performed as God himself designed it to be but when one leaves that behind and starts... Twisting and perverting the act and the way it is performed, that really is then a sin against nature. And it has a particular malice to it and particular punishment for it. Uh, as you know, again, uh, sins crying to heaven for vengeance. One of the four great categories involves that, the perversion. 10. What is forbidden by the ninth commandment? Impure thoughts and desires. The ninth commandment now has to do with desires or coveting. And that has to do with even the thoughts and desires for these things. So our Lord has told us not only is it sinful to do these things, it's sinful to even think about these things and to wish these things, to desire these things. I mean, after all, all the sins of actions against purity begin with sins of desire for them. And our Lord says, I will not even allow you to desire these things. I will not allow you to dwell on these things and to think of these things willingly. God can do that because he is God. He is God of our thoughts. And he can provide the graces we need. Even as he commands us, I forbid you to think about these things. I forbid you to desire these things. God can provide the graces we need to fulfill that command. He doesn't require the impossible from us. He can give us the graces we need to turn our thoughts away from what is evil, away from what is perverted, to what is good. And that's what we have to pray for. It says under the answer to number 11 here, every sin of impurity is a mortal sin, unless not fully consented to, as could happen, for example, with impure thoughts. Sometimes people daydream, and say suddenly realize where their thoughts have gone, or where they're going, and they realize it's sinful and then they stop, they say, no, I'm not going that way, this is not right. If they willingly continue, then they've committed a sin, uh, where it was, let's say, an accident or inadvertence, and they find themselves having, you know, stepped into the quicksand, they have to throw it in reverse and get out of the quicksand. If they keep going into the quicksand, they die, spiritually. Number 12. When do you become guilty of impure thoughts? When you knowingly and willingly keep such thoughts in your mind, but especially in taking pleasure in them. Keeping the thoughts in one's mind is sinful, because they are a proximate danger of mortal sin. To even dwell on these things, even out of curiosity, is sinful. But when the desire for them enters there, when the pleasure enters in,
1: then we know.
0: Uh, we are actually entering, no doubt, into forbidden territory, and we have to actually reject these things, absolutely. Turn our attention away from them to something uh, of great importance to us that can hold our attention away from these evil things. Um, And here we have a quote from the Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 7. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders. Thirteen, is it possible to lead a pure life? The answer is yes, of course. It is possible to lead a pure life. With God's help, it is. They give you five subheadings here. If you stay away from all persons, places, or things which easily lead you into sin. Secondly, if you pray often, especially to our Blessed Virgin Mary, and especially pray her Holy Rosary, and go to confession and receive Holy Communion regularly. So if you pray and receive the sacraments regularly, you'll have the strength necessary to be faithful to our Lord when your love for him is challenged by these things. Three, if you keep busy, definitely, if you fill your mind, your attention with things that are significant, important, and worthy of your attention, that crowds out all these evil thoughts. Four, if you flee from temptations when they first appear and don't toy with them, Uh, with temptation, especially against impurity. Don't think that you can challenge, let's say, uh, the devil or the powers of hell uh, to some kind of a wrestling match over these things. The devil knows where our weaknesses are. and He will take advantage of that. The sources of temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they team up against us very often. The world around us with its lurid temptations And the flesh with its weaknesses, which we can't escape. They're always there with us. We simply have to develop the strength by God's grace to overcome those weaknesses. And, of course, the devil who's always willing to provide a temptation when he has an opening. We have to refuse to negotiate with these things. We can't negotiate over the salvation of our souls, over the damnation and, and salvation of our souls. We can't negotiate with those. If we begin to negotiate, we've already lost right from the start. And number five, if you practice giving up things you like and doing things you do not like, you practice mortification. Therefore, and what you're doing is you're, you're strengthening your will to turn away from things pleasurable but wrong. And uh, you need to practice that will. There, there are lazy people who just can't seem to muster the strength not only to resist temptation but even to ask for the grace to resist temptation. <clears throat> and they're stuck. They want their temptations. They may go to confession, all right. And they may say, "I'm heartily sorry." for my sins of whatever it might be. But they have no intention of giving up the temptations. They want to keep the temptations in their life. It's sort of like saying, well, okay, I, uh, I'm i a diabetic, a severe diabetic, and I know what happens if I overindulge in sugar and it dries my blood sugar level through the roof, and I'm, I'm in danger. I'm in serious danger because of that. So, I mean, I can't indulge in... Uh, you know, chocolate layer cakes and, and all these other delicious things, okay, I won't, but I'm going to keep them around. I'm going to buy them, I'm going to take them home with me, I'm going to put them everywhere, I just love the look of them, I love the smell of these things, but no, I'm not going to indulge in them. That's insanity, to do that. And how we are attached to the temptations, the things that represent temptations to us. And we may say, well, I'll give up the sin, but I will not give up the temptation, <coughs> because I find the temptation too delightful. Those cells are going to, well, they're going to have to do one thing or the other. They're going to have to find a way to give up the temptation as a proximate occasion of mortal sin, or they're they're going to go to hell because of these things. So they have to break free. They have to break free of these things. Now we come, well, let's see. At the end of 5 here, number 13, 5, there is a quotation from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And everyone that striveth for the mastery refraineth himself from all things, and they indeed that they may receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible one. Well spoken, of course, by St. Paul, divine revelation. The one who, who strives for mastery, that is control, that is control, in this case self-control, refrains from things that are damaging and harmful, draws away from them, does not give them access to them and for the sake of an incorruptible crown. So that's what we have to do when it comes to these matters of purity. And there's one practical point they give, and then the chapter is finished. A Catholic today must bear in mind that he is living in a mostly pagan world, and that many things which the world takes for granted are in fact sins, or at least serious temptations, that must be avoided. Television, Shows, videos, wearing, apparel, etc. must be evaluated with a Catholic conscience and not with the eyes of the world. Our standards cannot be the the standards of the world. If they are, we will join the world in hell. In fact, uh, we see how following standards contrary to God's will leads the world, as it were, to an early hell to form an early hell here on earth. It seems that we might be heading that way now uh, because the world has rejected the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ and his authority and his law. And so we're going to not just return to a pagan world um, if the this does not stop, if this this uh, devolution is not, is not halted by a repentance, a conversion of ourselves and others to God, if this process of degradation does not stop, we will not be a, a kind of a revived paganism as in the past. This will be a paganism that has known Christ and has rejected him and even hates him and defies him. <clears throat> That's worse than the original paganism. Uh, you could have a paganism that at least believed in somewhat in the natural law in the old days But this modern paganism is going to be a paganism that is so uh, hateful of Christ and of God and God's order that it will reject even the natural law, lock, stock and barrel and will become completely perverted and that will be like hell on earth, God forbid, that we should go this way. But when we read in the Gospel, the last days of the world, we know that that's the condition that will prevail throughout the world at that time. As they say, God forbid, that it should be now. That's the decision we have to make. A very important factor in making that decision has to do with these two commandments. Whether we keep, whether we observe the sixth and the ninth commandments. Let's resolve right now that we are not going to lose our souls for these ridiculous pleasures of the world which are here today, gone tomorrow, and cause so much grief even in the process of using them. Um, let us realize, let's realize these things are definitely not worth it. I mean, how many times do people indulge in these impurities and live to regret it bitterly because of disease, because of anger and hatred they generate, even among those who once felt felt deeply in love with each other and now they hate and despise each other, want to destroy each other. We see it happen over and over again, where when lust is used as a substitute for love, it ends in hatred, contempt and very, very deep malice. God forbid that that should be the course of our lives, God forbid that that should be really defining our judgment before the judgment seat of our Lord, God forbid that that should define the course of the world and mankind today. We have to stand up for what is right, we have to stand up for what is pure what is clean in the eyes of God. We have to use this life-giving power that he's given us according to his wishes and not twist them to serve our own selfish purposes. I ask you to think about that. And to young people who are considering marriage, I ask you this, to please respect your marriage vows before you make them. The, the most serious disrespect you can give to your marriage vows even making a mockery of your marriage vows right now is to engage in sins of impurity with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or maybe your fiancée's, for that matter. To engage in these impurities, what does that say about your whole attitude toward your marriage vows? And if you're willing to break your marriage vows now before you make them and to dishonor them and drag them through the mud and disregard them, now before you make those marriage vows, how are you going to respect those marriage vows after you make them? No, no, respect for the marriage vows and respect for the God who receives your vows and ratifies those vows and joins you in marriage or ideally, of course, the sacrament of matrimony for those who belong to Christ. No, no, show your respect for the marriage vows now. That is the greatest guarantee you can have that you and your future spouse will respect those marriage vows once they are made and will hold fast to them and honor them throughout their entire lifetimes and be faithful to God and to you. Well, may God bless you all, and I pray for you a pure life. God bless you, and uh, please pray for me as well.